Good morning. Good to see you. Good to see David anyway. I don't know what happened to the rest of y'all. It's good to be here at ANC. You have a little bit of a treat today. Uh, it won't be an interview like when Stan was here. The last time we had this cool table is when Stan was here. Um, but we're going to tag team preach, and I've never done that, at least not around the subject of colonialism. Oh, come on, for God's sakes. <laughs> when have you ever heard a, sub, a, a sermon on colonialism? Come on. So this is like a TV first. Um, so Caesar and I are going to tag team this together for, for several reasons. Um, what would a critique be of how the gospel comes to the Americas without the voice of a Latin American to give that prophetic angle, right? And so Caesar's going to bring that. Caesar is a, a scholar. He's a podcaster. He's an author. He's a friend. He's now in Austin. His family sits on the very back row. Wave at us. Ada. Ada, Matias, Simon, and Julian are back there. Um, and so we're going to do this one together. We're coming into some tough waters, y'all. Now's when to check out if you need to. Now's when to go fishing. Because we've got three subjects coming at us that are going to be difficult to handle. Let me tell you why. We're going to need to set the table to understand the history of the way things are. And it's not going to be comfortable. You're going to feel some pressure. Like the nurse always tells you, you're going to feel some pressure. Right before she takes a hacksaw and cuts off a limb, you're like, that's more than pressure. Do you ever notice that the nurses pressures anything from this to like a broadsword to the, to the neck. Um, so it's going to be difficult to get through the next three weeks. I'm looking forward to September for several reasons. School is one of them, but also to get through the tough water we have ahead. So Caesar's going to hang, and he's going to bring um, some stuff that only he can bring at some point. We're going to tag team this together. Today, we're actually going to do some historical work, some historical work in theology. So buckle up. Cultures come from somewhere. I know you know this. Things don't just happen. It's actually possible to go to the headwaters of the San Antonio River and see where it all begins, right? Cultures come from someplace. Interactions between cultures also have history and come from someplace. And I would suggest that understanding those roots is half the work to figure out how to live into a new story. You've got to understand where things come from. It's a large part of what it means to do faith in a changing world is figuring out, well, where do these misconceptions come from. And make no mistake about this little church on South Lamar, that's what we're aiming for. We're looking to live into a whole new story. Let me just tell you, I have seen the expiration date on the faith of my fathers, and I'm looking for something new. My invitation to you is help us as we figure that out. You know this, so I won't waste a ton of time as we set this up, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news that God chose all of us, was never designed to be added to your story. That gospel is not something you can bolt on after the fact. It was never designed to be added to your story. In fact, it was designed to replace your story. I would say it this way. It is your deepest story that you are loved, that God took you into account, that God saw your people before you turned your face to God. That is the good news, right? It's not added to your story. It's something you have to release whatever story you carry in order to embrace the fact that you are chosen in God, that your needs, your desires, your wants, your way of navigating the universe was something that was first on the mind of God. To live into this new story is going to require us to let go of the old story. My question is, how well do we know the story that we bring to faith? We call this process deconstruction. Many of us are deep into it now. We're deep into it now. In fact, Stan's coming to do in November, I think November 2nd, he's coming to do an all-day workshop. What do you do now if your faith is currently being deconstructed? What if nothing remains? 
That sounds like a good subject, so he's coming back to help us through that. Stan would call it deconstruction. Brother Brian might call it looking for a new, a new home. We, we, the, the, he, his, the term he likes to use is spiritual migration. There's a point where it's time to move to something different. Either way, the spiritual work that we do together as a community, considering thoughtfully the stories from which we come and how to live into a better, more redemptive story, that is the work of this community, and that's what we're about. You see, stories have histories. They come from someplace. Location, culture, and time all impact significantly how we see the world and the gods we build to reflect our values. Yep, that's what I just said. Stories are things that are handed to us, but it's possible, given the right intent, to live into a different kind of story. It's possible to live into a new direction, if we're so inclined. Let's talk about the story of Austin, this little village. It was called Waterloo until it was named after Stephen F. Austin. Why are we considered residents here? Why are people of color considered immigrants here? Think about it. You're standing on the noble Northern Republic of Mexico, at least at one time. Why is this home to us and a foreign land that's off limits to those often to, to people of color? It doesn't take us long to flip the script on a place, does it? Look around you, Austin, Texas, you're lily white, to my great disappointment. Having lived most recently in Houston and Chicago, this place feels like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Idaho to me sometimes. That's a white place up north. Texans have absolutely no idea of geography. Texans know San Antonio, Dallas, and Austin, and then there's New York somewhere next to Louisiana, right? <laughs> but look around you, Austin, Texas. You're almost entirely Caucasian. And even though every other major city in Texas that is growing is also growing proportionately with minorities, that's not true in Austin. Did you know that? Minority populations are falling fast in Austin. Look around you, Austin, new church. You're almost impossibly white. Look around you. You're almost entirely Caucasian. For a faith community, it's almost entirely white. For many reasons. I know we're growing and we're expanding, but still we struggle to welcome, to see, to validate, to fully understand our people of color that are part of this congregation. After all, to quote Jason Isbell, and this is for you, Natalie, I'm just a white man trying, living with a white man's point of view. I'm doing my best to figure out how do we build something alternative. I'm not happy with the story of Austin, Texas. I'm not happy with the current demographic reality of Austin, New Church. I'm looking for a new story. Why do I point this stuff out? Well, the next three sermons, colonialism, evangelism, as a function of conquest, so get ready, and racism, they're gonna require that we reflect honestly about the world that we inherited. I know you didn't create it. That's not the question. Can you see it? And what do we do next is the question. You see, if you were born in America as, as a white, cisgendered person to a relatively stable Christian family, then you came into the world standing on top of a massive old structure that protected your privilege. You came in on top. That's not true for many other people. And here's the, here's the thing. You didn't design it. You didn't build it. It's not your fault. But if you know it's there, can you and will you deconstruct that thing that is under your feet that others spend their lifetime climbing? That's the question ahead of us. So we're setting the table today, and it's not going to be an easy word. Lamar came to me after the worship set last time. He says, man, I feel like all my songs are too happy. I'm like, either that or I'm just too doggone sad. Just too heavy of a word today. Here's what I'm talking about. Complicity. It's a hard word. 
It says that even if you didn't create something, and in this case, a social reality that we're talking about, but whatever the case is, if you know that it exists and you act like it doesn't and you leave it in place, you are complicit. If we make our case in the next couple of weeks, we'll begin to bear up under this load and pick a different story as a community of faith, and that's my hope. We'll begin to see new patterns, new colors, new realities that have always been part of the backdrop of life in America, whether or not you knew it. You see, you don't have to understand it for it to exist. It exists whether we acknowledge it or not. In fact, that's my working definition of leadership, if you must know. Leadership is the willingness to name what is, even if that provokes resistance. Austin New Church, we are monocultured at this point, and it's time to give some work, time to think about this. So here we go. Most of us in this room are descendants of people known for their ambition and their certainty. Western Europeans are known for weaving God's speaking with economics and politics. They're even known for creating science to validate their thoughts. We're known for speaking on God's behalf willingly with confidence and conviction. What do I mean? We don't just start new stuff. We say God told us to, right? We don't just take the basic principles of previous revolutions. We rebel against our overlord and justify it with biblical theological language. We find it in the text. We don't just land here in the new world. No, no, no. We begin labor-intensive industries, and then we find inexhaustible sources of labor to make them hum, to maximize the lucrative qualities of that industry. We don't just prosper. We tell ourselves that prosperity is our divine birthright. And then we tell the victims that we enslave to make, it, make us money that God ordained them to serve us, and we use our sacred texts to feel good about that on Sunday mornings. That's what I mean. We use our faith to baptize our ambition. We use our faith to baptize our economics. Now, I'm not in the game today to just to make you feel ashamed. We're all in the same bucket. That's not me doing my job. I'm hoping that we can achieve some increased awareness. And that process begins oftentimes with a little bit of pain, a little bit of awareness, a little bit of shame, and it'll move us to a better story if we let it. I want us to grow. I want us to grow together. I want us to grow specifically together around the issues of race and how we interact. And our world, whether you like to know it or not, is still a clash of old world and new world cultures. Think of this. Our people came from the land from whence we came with a new measure, a new desire for religious freedom. What we wanted was faith without government oversight. Oh, yeah? And a huge economic ambition came with it. We were colonies of the old world, you see. We were beachheads of culture from a, from a foreign land in search of new opportunities, religious and economic. But when taxation without representation provoked us to the point of grabbing a musket in one hand and a Bible in another, everything changed, didn't it? Oh, this God that sent us to evangelize now is sanctioning our rebellion, our revolution. In due time, our theologians would find biblical justification for the independence that we cried out for. So we tell England and we tell France, and we tell Holland, and we tell Spain to go fly a kite. Well, we gather to pray, and we pen a declaration of independence at the plantation of a distant relative of the family my mother married into, Governor Robert Morris of Virginia, and God sanctions our revolution, right? And we saw it in the Bible. It was there. It authorized us. But that was a limited dispensation because, see, if you're in earshot of this conversation and you're a person of color, this isn't for you. 
Oh, no, 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 no. The God of this text that used to be the one who sent us into the world to evangelize and is now in favor of us taking arms. Don't even tinker with that piece of advice. No, no, we'll quote Paul and tell you that slaves must stay subject to their masters as unto Christ. Hang with me. It's going to hurt here for a minute. We didn't just stop there. We didn't just stop there. We manufactured a whole biblical case for the inferiority of peoples that inconvenienced us. How? They were on what we wanted. They controlled what we wanted. We dug deep into the Old Testament until we created what we call the theology of the curse of Ham. What is this? Well, Noah had children, and one of his sons was cursed for an indiscretion, and the Hebrews believed that his descendants became the inhabitants of Canaan land. Why is this important? Because they needed a reason to throw him out because they wanted that land. We go deep into the Old Testament. We borrow from Judaica, ancient Judaica, and we bring it into American theology. And next thing you know, we come up with the theology that says, if you're a person of color, God's lot in life for you is to serve the white race because after all, we're superior. We didn't just stop with the taking. We moved to the justification. Your divine choice by God is to serve me, and I'm divinely ordained to rule over this land. And we didn't just stop there. We didn't stop till we created science bogus science, but we thought it was right. Science to justify the inferiority of people. Robin D'Angelo says that race is the offspring of racism. A system must underpin the mistreatment of peoples. And that's just what we did. And that's our history. Here's what I want us to sit with today. Take a deep breath before you pass out. I mean that. Take a deep breath. Here's what I want us to sit with. We were once the colony of another power, until we rejected that arrangement and found Scripture to say that it was not to be accepted. Then we became the colonizers themselves. We became the devil we hated. We became the empire that we overthrew, and the cycle continued. You see, colonial theology has a brand. It has a sequence. It goes a little something like this. Number one, God made the heavens and the earth, and he gave them to his son. Number two, his son gave them to the church when he left the earth. Number three, the church needs cash quick because the Moors are pressing from North Africa and we need to protect the Holy Land. And so what must we do? God must be sending us around the, around the globe to find new sources of revenue. Number five, and once we get there, God authorizes our rebellion to those powers that sent us there. But don't mistake that as permission for you to do the same, people of color, natives of this land. That's for us. That authority is not transferable. That's how colonial theology goes. It's built on a couple of understandings. Number one, that indigenous culture is inferior because it has no historic witness of Christ. So therefore, the lot of the indigenous people is to serve the white master. Now, I'm certain you can see the problem with this theology from where you sit now. But it wasn't that many years ago that this is what was being preached from American pulpits. I hope it makes you angry. I hope it makes you sweat. The question before us today is, how do we unwind this spring that has created the interactions of races in Central Texas? You say it doesn't exist. Oh, open your eyes. How do we unwind this spring? How do we reverse the effect of this? How can we create a world where, that we can build on better things, build a new world where people are equal? If we don't, the gospel will move on, will liberate another group of people, and we won't understand the contradiction between what we thought was true and what is actually being lived out by our lives. What if we could interrupt this colonial sequence? You know, someday, if there's any money left over in our college account, the non-existent one, in case you wondered, girls. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to study this more. I want to go back to the 16th century. I want to understand where did we get it so wrong? 
Where did we get it from? What if we could interrupt this colonial sequence? What if God was already here when we got here? Think of it, church. What if God was here when we got here? What if God was self-revealing God's self for centuries, if not millennia, before any of us arrived in this new world? What if we could learn from our own text to expect God to be born on the margin? Do we not even know our story? How does power and privilege become synonymous with the gospel? What if we just knew to look on the margins? What if we knew? What if pre-existing indigenous revelation could actually enhance what we know to be true about God? Wouldn't that change everything? Wouldn't that change everything? You say, wait, preacher, this is, this is the United States. This is different. Haven't you heard of American exceptionalism? Oh, ho, ho, ho. boy, have I. We are clearly blessed by God. Our success, here, our success in the new world is proof that God sent us here, right? That's how the story goes. What if germs and gunpowder and steel and advances in technology are the reason that we have succeeded? What if technology and farming is why we have succeeded? What if it has nothing to do with the fact that God chose us and ordained us to be on top? What if all of that is bogus? Then what would we make of the world? How would the world look? Maybe acknowledging the fact that we're actually not superior we're driven by technology. Maybe that would change how we see ourselves. Maybe that would change how we see our role in the world. You see, stories are passed down, but ultimately it's possible to choose better stories if we're of a mind to. And there's an alternative telling to our collective history that erases categories of superior and inferior and reminds us that all God's people have been chosen by God. Now you're telling yourself, preacher, this isn't the story we were told in school. I know. I know. Welcome to adulthood where we gather around kitchen tables and bonfires to decipher the difference between myth and truth, where we decide between propaganda and what has just been told to us to justify the way we are in the world. You see, old stories need to be evaluated for their usefulness if we're going to build new worlds. We were told exactly what we needed to be told to justify the taking of what we needed. That's the story of, uh, of empire. That's always been the story. And it's a mysterious mix in America that I think the emerging world sees clearly. And if we give it a voice to critique what we have built, it might just tell us what it sees. You see, colonialism says, I have the true message of God. Yours is invalid no matter how old it is. Mine's better because, it's, because I'm culturally superior, because I'm armed, right? And, I, it, it, and, and I'm stronger and I'm, and I'm more equipped to conquer. My version of God is better or more certain. Colonialism demonizes anything indigenous, anything organic, anything pre-existing. It has to. And it assumes that the gospel should destroy cultures and we ought to know better. The gospel infuses, it bubbles up through, it inhabits cultures. We should know this because Jesus came from a very distinct, strong cultural background. We were told that truth was transferable and it traveled on wooden boats and all it required was for you to completely and utterly obliterate your cosmovision as you knew it to accept this thing brought from the old world. We were taught that this was evangelism and we should know better. You see, Jesus comes to layer, to build upon, to stack upon a, something old, a new kind of revelation, something deeper, something more true, but also dependent on its own history. He didn't require the obliteration of Judaism. No, no, he said, I come to fulfill the law of Moses. Don't consider me the one who comes to erase it. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law uh, or the prophets. I have come to abolish... I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, this is actually a very interesting point of contention in the time of Jesus. They say, how can you absolutely go to a new place? And he says, I'm building. We're going to a different place. 
For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Truth layers. It accumulates. It builds. It respects. It seeks to affirm what already exists. You see, trees have rings. Previous expansions, previous seasons of growth, previous revelations of God, they're all in place. Previous innovations even, they're all still in place to hold the tree that's still growing, that's still adding, that's still moving forward. I wonder if we could hear that voice from Latin America that might prophetically critique the gospel we bring them. I wonder what that might sound like. I wonder, Caesar. I wonder. I wonder. He's so patient sitting here looking at me the whole time. <laughs> Good morning, ANC. Uh, my name is Cesar. I come from Chile in South America. Do you know where Chile is? Yeah? Good. <laughs> we just arrived with my family a couple of weeks ago to serve side by side with, with you, ANC. And we are so glad to be here. So are we. Thank you. I speak some English, but I'm not great, so please forgive my, my mistakes, my mistakes. And please don't be offended because of my English, okay? That being said, one of my goals this morning uh, is maybe to offend you <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit, but it won't be because of my English, okay? I want to give a longer prologue than I usually give. I think it's necessary to understand some ideas. Some of the ideas, uh, uh, Jason already uh, said those, some of those ideas, but there's some ideas that are, are worth to say twice, mm -hmm. especially Sunday morning. Um, so please be patient with me. Okay. The belief that economic power or military power is synonymous with God's preference, support, or blessing is not new. That idea has deep roots in human history. And here's one example. A lot of what we know about the first century Jewish world comes from a, very, for, from a Jewish Roman historian named Flavio Josefo. At the beginning, he opposes the Roman Empire, but after a while, he started to reinterpret the, the Jewish Bible to make it fit the current context. Flavio Josefo made the messianic prophecies fit with the emperor. When he experienced Roman power, he said this. Listen, if you are looking for God in Jerusalem, you're wasting your time. God doesn't live in Jerusalem anymore. Now he lives in Rome. Mm. And that is a shocking statement coming from a first century Jewish guy. After a few centuries, the empire became synonymous with the church. And the same church was oppressed in the past become the oppressor. The cross and the sword were tools of conquest and evangelization. The Christian, must be, the, the Christian God must be the true God because they have the power. Someone could say that. And please don't misunderstand me. Power and influence could be a sign of God's blessing, but oftentimes they are just a way to corrupt the soul. And that is a cycle we should be aware of something we should avoid because it is so easy for human nature to become the very same thing it opposes. Mm. That happened with movements. It happened with empires. It happens with families and could happen 
to us. And this is the kind of Christianity that we received in Latin America. A Christ dressed in the royal robes of the empire. A version of the gospel that could not see the image of God in brown-skinned natives. Who could blame the natives for not accepting this imported gospel? The Spaniard's cross was covered with the blood of their brothers and sisters. What we often do is satanize what we don't understand. Satanize. 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 I'm not so good with Satan. You're good. Stuff. You're good. I'm not offended. <laughs> good. I'm not offended. That's good. Is, are you offended? No, you're not no? offended. Keep going. Okay. You're good. Take your nice. At the beginning, the natives were considered people without souls. Without souls. And, and even though that changed a few years later, all world Christianity considered their religion and culture dark, wrong, even satanic. And this is why new cathedrals were always built on top of indigenous temples, destroying their symbols and considering their stories something inspired by the devil. Let's take a look at verse in Acts and ask ourselves some questions. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointment times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Okay, some context here. Paul was in Athens, terrified by the idolatry he saw. In Areopagus, he found a connection, an altar, to the unknown God. Paul said, I'm here to talk about him, about that unknown God. He found something in the culture that pointed to God. And I think that's, that's amazing. God was with them, even though they didn't realize it. Paul started talking about this unknown God who created every human being and gave them the capacity to find him with the Bible or without it. Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word of God has been speaking to the human race around the world for thousands of years. We just need to tune our ears to hear him everywhere, every time. The Spaniards did not follow Paul's example when they came to the new world. They saw a different skin color, a different way of life, a different approach to God, and they declared all of it demonic. Let me give you some examples about what I see as a divine revelation before Columbus arrived. Ideas that sounds quite similar to Christians, Christian ideas. Number one, the Aztec king, Nezahuacoyotl, a ver, see if you can say that word. <laughs> Nezahuacoyotl. You can do it. Come on, no wait. Make me feel better. Nezahuacoyotl. Nezahuacoyotl. 
If the T and the L together at the end is odd, that's the only language formation on the planet that puts a T and an L at the end of word. Dr. Chuck, you should know that. Mesawakoyotl. Yeah. I feel better about my accent now. Yeah, it's great. Okay, okay. okay the Aztec king, Nesawakoyotl, wrote several philosophical and even theological poems expressing the existing of just one non-created God. Mm. Number two, the Mapuche culture believed in a supreme God called Henechen. For them, he was author of the universe, father, and, his, and he had his throne in heaven. The Anahuac civilization, Mayans were part of it, part of this, believed in a supreme God that could not be represented with a figure. They said that this God was invisible and they metaphorically called him the one for who you live. Number four, Wisilopostli. Come on, y'all, you can do Wisilopostli. It's not a big deal. God of the Sun uh, was one of the most important of the Aztec gods. In one of the ceremonies in his honor, a huge statue of the god made, was made out of amaranth, and then the people ate the god as a symbol of belonging and communion. It is impossible to overlook the similarities between, with the Christian faith. I mean, it seems like in some way, the same wind that blew in Israel blew here too. Someone could say, at this point, someone could say, so what's the point of the church? Uh, or what's the point of missionary outreaches? What is the gospel? And I think those are fair questions. And uh, should be addressed with more time probably, but let me say this and I'm just, I'm finishing. The good news is not we brought God to this place. The good news is God is not far from you. He has been here the whole time. Let's experience his presence together. Amen. You see, here's what I believe, and I think this is good theology, and I wonder if you resonate with this. All children are God's children. That's why we can't be indifferent. We can't be indifferent to what's going on in our country right now. All kids, I don't care their migratory status. All children are God's children. Wherever people are, God is actively engaged. I think that's not even hard to, to point out. Our stories feature us as protagonists. Of course they do. Who else would be at the center of the story that we tell ourselves? But every culture's cosmovision is complemented by what God is doing in other places. It was never a single voice. It was never just ring in the, one ring in the tree. It was never just a single perspective. It's always been a tapestry that God is weaving. There are no inferior cultures. You say, I don't even know why you're talking about this preacher. I think I know you're right. Yeah, except we stand on top of scaffolding that sets us up to turn our nose up to everything that has preexisted. And church, it's time. It's time to look deeply. It's time to break out the tools and deconstruct that thing that has privileged us to be where we are in the world. There's no inferior cultures. There are no superior cultures. There are only people. And then there's technology and disease and weather and the raw ambition to create and harness them for our collective purpose. Available technology is what, is what elevates one culture above the next, not God. Now pause a second. What were you told? I know what I was told. 
We're told God picked us. God chose us. That's why we're on top. No, no. What if crossing the Atlantic was a snafu of history and the science of circumnavigation? What if it had less to do with the fact that God picked you to survive and it had to do with the fact that now we understood the winds and how to harness them? Oh, church, it's time we do some thinking. Technology elevates one culture above the next, not God. And technology has never been equally distributed. It hasn't. When one culture manages to vanquish another, the story it tells itself inevitably is the one that has to justify the cruelty and the injustice required to appropriate what it needed. These stories are what we tell our children because they provide us meaning. And they'll eventually become our sacred texts. Our God will eventually look just like the stories we tell ourselves. I don't know how old you are, but you were old enough to see the God created that you worship, and you think it's the only one until you wake up in the world and see all the amazing things that God has done. It's time for a better story, church. I feel like we're entering into a new chapter. It's time to raise our kids differently. It's time to raise them more informed. Colonial faith says that we have been chosen to tell you how things actually work. Trust me, I grew up as a missionary, as an evangelical missionary in Latin America. That's what colonial faith says, and it lives on. The conquest lives on. We're going to talk about that more next week. We've, we've been chosen, and the only thing you have to do is erase everything you've ever known to accept this thing that doesn't look like you, it doesn't smell like you, it doesn't think like you, it doesn't connect with you. It's ambition and it's greed. It's colonial. It requires conquest. And it's time we unweave that story. We've all been chosen. And faith weaves all those witnesses into a deeper truth of what is God actually like in the world. It's a more complete whole if we can see it, if we can release what we need to, to grab onto a better thing. There's no need to erase, to obliterate, even to ignore what God is already doing. St. Patrick finds his way by pointing out what God is already doing. And that version of faith saves Christian history from its worst century. It rises, you see, from the soil. Truth rises where human hearts look up and look down and look over and wonder and ask hard questions. Truth percolates from the very base of our existence. It doesn't travel well. It doesn't fit in wooden ships. It rises. It's built into the operating system of human beings. And it doesn't need to be carried any place. You see, here's my fear. Our imperial ways will one day put us on the other end of the same story we've told ourselves. The God that we profess that has set us free will one day be the same God that sanctions our overthrow. And then what do we do? Truth will march on. People will be set free. I know this is a hard story. It's a difficult story. You see, here's the thing. We've wrapped our faith with power. We've wrapped our faith with ambition. And we can't quite get it unglued at this point. And I think it's time we give that some thought. Let's pray. You know how this goes. When the lights go out, you stand up and the musicians make their way up here. Maybe you don't stand to your feet. Y'all are quick. Hang on. Hang on with this church. These truths that we're pursuing are going to untell the stories we've told ourselves and going to give us something better to live for. And it's going to hurt. 
And it's going to mean that we live differently. Why am I concerned with this? Why does this even make it into a Sunday morning? Why, preacher, can't you just encourage people in the gospel? Why can't you just tell people, you know, things that they want to hear? Here's why. We live in central Texas. This clashes our reality. Can you see it? If you can't see it, you can't help me unwind it. You can't help us live differently. And it's important on a Sunday like today when we reflect on how, how, how deeply lost we really are I had to tell uh, Caesar last night, he, he sent me a WhatsApp message. He says, hey, did you see what just happened in the news? And of course, on Saturdays, I don't pay any attention to the news or any other day of the week mostly, but certainly not on Saturdays. So I pop over to the NPR app, and I realize there's been another tragic shooting in El Paso, Texas. I'm looking at Beto tell me what he's doing and how, what, what's going on. It feels so familiar. And by the time I woke up this morning, another tragic shooting. Here's the story that I'm curious about. Who were you told were the bad people in your neighborhood? Easy preacher. Now, listen, who were you told? What schools were you told to avoid because of their demographics? What homes were you told not to buy because they're in the wrong part of town? Weren't you told that people of color were the bad people in your communities? I ask you this question, church. Who are nearly 100% of the perpetrators in this violent, senseless crime that we have made such peace with that it doesn't even make us think profoundly anymore? I got to tell Caesar, welcome to America. This is the way it is here. We grab muskets and rifles and Bibles and we weave them and I'm crying out for a new story. They are blown away by the violence we just, we just accept. Every one of us knows. Every one of our voice pieces and our politicians are going to do exactly what we expect them to do. Those who believe in the preservation of arms to protect ourselves are going to say, see, it was a one-off thing. And those who say, this violence is killing my neighborhood are going to say, do something. It's polarized. No one's going to move. No one flinches at this point. And it's time for a better story. I don't know if you happened into this church and you're like, where did I end up? We have hard conversations here. Maybe I should have warned you. But church, there's, it, we've got to do something different. It begins in the kitchen table. It begins how we see our neighbor. Someone after church asked me, what do you want us to do? I want us to ask better questions of people from different spaces. Can we sit with our complicity? Can we sit undefended when someone says, everything about my life hurts and struggles because I have no legal status? Can we sit with people's stories when they tell us I've been black in a white church my whole life and I've never yet been seen? Can we hear the truth of Asian Americans who say, you see me as white and I come from a completely different culture? Can we hold space? Can we ask deeper questions? Here's the thing. Can we open our hearts? Can we open our minds? What's the next hill for ANC to focus on? What's the next thing? You guys, it's our inability to see how privileged we are. Born dead center in the middle of privilege. And I'm asking us to think differently. Oh God, do this work in us. We don't accept marginalization of other peoples. We don't accept violence. We don't accept people being demonized and Satanized because they're different. We don't accept the gospel that obliterates peoples. We don't accept cruelty and distinction. We are all your kids. We are all your children. Help us transform this church and transform this city. Help us live into a different story where grace flows freely for all, no distinctions. 
And if, Lord, if we don't even have the hunger for that, give us the hunger for that. For a better place, a better world, a better reality. We mourn with those who were senselessly gunned down yesterday. We mourn with the parents of those people who were lost and their loved ones. We mourn with the parents of the shooters. How, my God, could they possibly explain the pain they're in right now? We mourn for a society that has lost its way. Forgive us for using your name to hurl insults at one another and to justify the things that we have done. Release us from the prison of our own small-mindedness. Show us that love is, is, is it's, it's, it's the only way that there has ever been to move forward. <laughs>